Hello and welcome to another edition of Shadow Talk. I'm your host, Michael Marriott. In this week's episode, following news that a database containing 340 million records has been publicly exposed to the internet, we ask, how can you reduce your attack surface? We look at an upcoming feature release by Microsoft with their ASR feature, and we look at the ways in which organizations can go about reducing their own attack surface and making it harder for attackers. I'm joined on this topic, I'm delighted to say, again by Dr. Richard Gold, Head of Security Engineering at Digital Shadows. Hello, Rich. Hi, Mike. How are you doing? Very well, thanks. And we're also joined by Simon Hall, also a security engineer at Digital Shadows. Hey, Mike, how's it going? Yeah, very well, thank you. Slightly jaded by the England-Belgium result from yesterday, but not something that I can't get over. What I want to talk about this week is attack surface reduction. Uh, there's been a couple of stories in the news this week. The first one of which I don't know whether you saw was the Exactus. Well, they called it a breach of 340 million records, and that was a, a public-facing Elastic Search database. And the second one was the news that Windows was soon to be releasing uh, new attack surface reduction functionality as part of Windows 10 in the coming few months. So I want to take this opportunity to talk about attack surface rejection in general. So perhaps it would be good to, first of all, start talking about what exactly attack surface reduction is. Yeah, that's a good good place to start. So I think a handy way to think about it is you can't attack what's not there. Sounds very simplistic, but there's actually a lot of value behind this approach. What that really means is that if you have features for network appliances, for software that are not being used or are unnecessary, then you can get rid of these things. Features means code, which means bugs, which means vulnerabilities, which means exploits. Also, the more features you have, the more likely you are to make misconfigurations that they maybe have default or weak credentials, or they're vulnerable to reused credentials. And they basically uh, provide more avenues of opportunity to the attacker to attack you. Now, one thing that frequently comes up when I chat to either of you two Uh, on a multitude of different topics is the importance of increasing attacker costs. And I gather this is pretty important for uh, attack service reduction as well. Yeah, definitely. So if you're taking away the common avenues of attack, you're forcing the attackers to work harder, you're forcing them to use maybe techniques which they are not as familiar with, you're forcing them to use toolkits that they're maybe not as experience with, which means it's more work for them, and you're increasing their costs. The more you increase their costs, the more likely you are to catch them. Or, in the best case scenario, to deter them to to leave you alone, although you shouldn't rely on that. But the, the importance of taking away these standard features is also not only that you are increasing the attacker costs for a particular attacker, you're also excluding a range of attackers. 
So commodity threats, if you've reduced your attack surface significantly enough that the standard attack choices that they would make are not available to them, they will most likely move on. Of course, the more advanced threats will adapt, and if they are sufficiently motivated, will continue to keep attacking and using different methods in order to overcome these controls that you've put in place. But it does raise the bar and does reduce the risk from commodity threats who are not able to adapt or innovate around the reduction of attack surface that you've put in place. Uh, yeah, so uh, as Richard said, I think there's a, there's a lot of different areas uh, under, under the attack service umbrella, um, such as credential hygiene, as Richard mentioned. Uh, but you've also got network segmentation, patch management, um, and then firewalling and access controls, for instance, making sure that everything's whitelisted. A big area under attack surface at the moment is going to be the, the cloud-based assets as well. Um, so everyone's enabling a lot of services through various cloud providers, uh, which are either getting left or just un, either getting left or are not registered as assets to the organisation. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. The maybe the the typical attack surface that we we think about is the the networking side of things, or the application side of things, or the software side of things, but the cloud is a really interesting facet to that. There's so many features and they're being rolled out so quickly and dev teams are often very quick to pick up on them. They, you know, they want to move fast. They want to take advantage of these new features. So things like AWS Lambdas, these kind of additional features which are provided that don't usually get tracked in the same way as other assets do. If you have, for example... A, an asset registry where you're tracking which laptops you have, which desktops you have. It's not a natural fit necessarily to start incorporating all these different interesting cloud services. Where do S3 buckets or Azure blob storage, where do these things fit into that? And being able to track all of these things as well and understand what's the attack surface that's created by these cloud services. Are the, Do they have strong credentials enforced? Do they have IP whitelisting where necessary? All these kinds of things. That's the real um, challenge these days to get a handle on all these different kinds of things. Mobile, yet another interesting attack surface. We know that attackers are spending serious money to get hold of exploits for mobile devices and their operating systems and browsers. So how do we get a handle on all of these things? I think that's something which is uh, really difficult nowadays. Just the scope has increased massively. I totally agree with that. And I think a big one is third parties as an attack surface. Yeah, absolutely. We've seen many times that there have been supply chain attacks which have been really successful. You may have good security, you may have great team, but uh, if you're Supply chain is vulnerable. And we're seeing, as I noticed in one of the um, Australian Signals Directorate articles, they talked about not only secondary, but also tertiary supply chain attacks. That is not just 
I compromise someone to get to you, but I compromise someone to compromise someone else to get to you. So it can be quite mind boggling when you put all of these things together. Exactly. Um, I mean, when you look around uh, the asset management uh, location that we, we talk about quite often, um, a lot of people go down the asset management route to try and identify their high profile assets. Um, and then around those assets, they try and place more security layers just to protect those. But quite often, things like third party risks and other services that they believe are not related they don't have the same security layers. So when it comes to an attack, someone may take an advantage of a third party um, to attack those, to be able to either use that trust layer between the third party service and the organization's services for either phishing or API access or whatever they have access to. And this is more of a threat generally than people trying to go straight for the critical assets of an organization. So in terms of just to wrap around to the kind of Windows 10 news, um, that takes does that take specific areas of attack surface reduction uh, into account? What might we expect from that if any of you guys have had a chance to look into that? So the Windows 10 uh, ASR features, um, I think they've been around for a while in the enterprise in, uh, deployments. Um, so these are mainly for blocking things like executables, and I think it's a, a lot of behavior-based stuff. So this is not going to prevent people accessing your uh, exposed services, but it is going to help prevent some of those uh, malicious executables from executing or things accessing certain locations on your hard disk. I think it's worth keeping in mind as well that whilst these improvements are very welcome, some of the really most effective attack surface reduction techniques do not fall into this package that Microsoft has been working on. For example, disabling Windows script hosting to prevent the execution of JavaScript and VBScript malware is very effective. And also how you configure Microsoft Office to deal with things like macros, DDE, early embedded objects, ActiveX controls, these things I think also form a big part of attack surface reduction as these are features which are very often targeted by attackers. The Microsoft development in this area, I mean, over the years they have done a lot to improve the security of their operating systems and also increase the ease at which you can deploy these security measures. Um, and most of the time, they're not deployed by default or organizations decide not to deploy them and deploy these sort of uh, protections through other software instead. Now, we've covered a lot of different tips and areas around, well, the network software and human areas. Do any of you have any res online resources you might point towards that may maybe we can include in the description? So one thing I like a lot is a tool called Harden Tools from Security Without Borders. It's a very nice Windows tool which just turns off the most risky features of Windows. And often these are features you don't really need anyway. There are cases where, for example, 
office macros are required by the business. And there you'll need to use some kind of trusted zone or some other compensating control to manage that. But for many people, they are simply not a requirement. And so if you look through the list of features that they disable, you can also be sure that, they, that they're not going to impact you. It's a very, very handy tool. And I think for myself, uh, most of it comes down to best practices and, and just OS hardening um, and service hardening in general. Uh, I mean, when you look at the Microsoft approach or Active Directory security, adsecurity.org, it's a very good site where they have a lot of useful information on hardening your operating system and deployment guides as well. I would also like to mention briefly browsers and browser hardening. That's also something where you can get quite a bit of bang for your buck. So by disabling Flash, ActiveX, Java, Silverlight, these plugins, which very often you don't need anymore, multimedia typically being delivered by HTML5 apps these days anyway, you can significantly reduce your attack surface. Many exploit kits are relying on old vulnerable versions of these plugins being available to them in order to perform their exploitation. However, if you do still need them, you can whitelist them for the sites that you really need. Or at the very least, you can use the mechanism that Google Chrome has, which is click to play. That is, a Flash video will not run, or a Flash site will not run until you've explicitly granted it permission. So that's a way to prevent Flash being executed automatically in your environment when you visit a page. Therefore, if you're vulnerable to malvertising or other attempts to get malicious code in front of your browser, just switching off this feature, just disabling or uninstalling Flash is very, very powerful. And as I said, these days you can do pretty well without it as HTML5 is ruling the roost. An area that people don't pay too much attention to is uh, exposed uh, remote desktop services. I mean, you only have to look at the likes of Shodan and see there's almost 3 million remote desktop services out there. And there's been some recent tooling, uh, retooling uh, for brute forcing of these services as well. It's quite interesting that people are using port forwarding to enable these services to public IP addresses uh, so they can gain remote access to them. Where there are plenty of solutions like IP whitelisting or firewalling or VPN solutions, which is the more preferred solution to access these uh, services directly. We've seen uh, recently a lot of uh, botnets using remote desktop to gain access to the servers, whether it's for uh, Bitcoin mining or actually using those as a pivot point into the organization. Uh, I think the, the amount of remote desktop services out there now and the amount of resources these uh, attackers have uh, to brute force these services or gain credentials from malware or whatever path they're going to go down is a real big risk of using port forwarding to enable these services to a public That's interface. a really good point. We've seen that a lot in some of the work that we've done, how effective a control like IP whitelisting is. It really is a very powerful and often overlooked 
way to reduce your attack surface. Now, if you have a surface where you know that the communicating endpoints are going to be reasonably fixed, so service used by 10, 15, 50, something like this kind of number of clients, it's feasible to IP whitelist the IPs that they're going to come in from. Obviously, certain consumer-facing or, or retail-facing sites can't take advantage of that. But in the cases where you can, and I think the RDP case where that Simon mentioned is a very good example of that, where you most likely only have a, a limited number of IPs connecting into that site, into that RDP service, you can whitelist them. And that dramatically reduces these opportunistic attacks that Simon mentioned. And I think as well that part of the way to really get a handle on this attack surface and to reduce it effectively is, as we've mentioned before on the podcast, really getting to know your environment, knowing what IP addresses you have, what services are running on them, what those services are used for. And we've seen a lot of improvement as well in this space. We've seen many networks which are locked down to just 18443 open. So that's that's good, that's pretty limited. However, there tends to be then lots of functionality on those ports. If it's a CMS, there could be some admin panel. If it's networking device like firewall or VPN, there could be a config panel available there. So even though there's only one port open, which is a good start, there may be many applications listening or many applications available through that interface. So I think it's also worth keeping in mind that the attack surface may be limited one way in terms of which ports are open, but could then expand by services available through a particular port. Now, we've covered lots of different areas and all great ways of reducing your attack surface. If you were to only be able to choose one area uh, that would have most bang for the buck, uh, which one would each of you go for? Myself, um, I'd go for IP whitelisting as a, a key source of reduction in attack service um, for external services and also network separation for internal services. That's a horrible question, Mike, but I'm glad you asked <laughs> it. I think for me, disabling office macros is definitely going to get you a long way and firewalling off unnecessary ports from the internet. So if that's the, I'm going to cheat slightly and take a, a software and a networking approach to hardening. But those two are the ones that I think give you the most bang for your buck. We've gone for days talking about the different areas you should uh, use to reduce your attack surface. Uh, but we just don't have the time for all of those. Okay, almost time to wrap up. Uh, let's have a key takeaway. What's the? What do you distill from this chat? I think I'm going to go back to the quote I used at the beginning. You can't attack what's not there. I think really, hopefully we've shown a, throughout this podcast that this, this quote really has some depth to it and it's something that can really take you a long way. So if you really get to know your environment, you know what you need, you also know that you, what you don't need. And if you can turn off the stuff that you don't need, I think you're already getting ahead of the game. 
And I think for myself, um, removing unnecessary services uh, and providing some form of access controls for services that do have a business requirement. Thank you, chaps, for another fascinating topic. And thanks to you at home for listening. For more information on Digital Shadows research, visit resources.digitalshadows.com. Have a great week.